Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Italy is one of the newest states in Europe, with the year of its unification commonly set in 1871. The United States, for comparison, is nearly a century older. The widespread idea of Italy as a nation isn't much older than that, but Italian nationality, in a very contradictory way, is rooted in a concept of a shared language, history, geography, and community that stretches back much further. So where do we get this idea of a unified Italy, and how did the creation and implementation of Italian nationalism affect its political unification? Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about Italian unification, which is a really interesting topic and actually parallels one of the very first ones I did on HI 101, which was uh, German unification. We're talking about the exact same time period. And it's it's interesting, particularly because they, they do kind of mirror each other in certain ways. But I'm hoping that I've gotten better at doing this podcast to enough of an extent that I can I can bring a little bit more depth to the topic than I did with uh, with Germany. So um, this should be an interesting, not quite do over, but similar to it. It's exciting. You can go back and compare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think these nations being so new is really interesting from uh, specifically the idea or from the point of view of nationalism and this idea of what exactly a nation is, which is one of those questions that seems really simple on its face until you start trying to actually pin down some sort of definition of it. And then all of a sudden you realize like it's it's really kind of complicated because you think about something like Germany or Italy and it seems so um, culturally monolithic and, you know, it's part of, you know, a major part of Europe. It must be, you know, so old kind of thing. And then, you know, if you take a group of Canada, Germany, and Italy, Canada's the oldest country in that group. Whoa. It's kind of a weird thing to wrap your head around because we think of ourselves as a fairly young nation and we are, but we're older than those two. And the thing that I really want to stress when I bring that up is that, um, there is a very real aspect of nationality that is artificial, that's kind of constructed. And sometimes it's constructed very organically over centuries and centuries. And sometimes it's actually very carefully built by very specific people. And when it comes to Italy, we're kind of looking at the latter a little bit. And 
this is something that I'm, I, you know, I actually forgot to mention before we started uh, recording, but I'm, I'm currently in the middle of working my way towards doing uh, a couple episodes on fascism. And this episode is part of the lead up to that, of course, uh, Italy being uh, one, of the birth, yeah. Yeah, yeah, one of the birthplaces of, of, of fascism. And with that in mind, as we go through this idea of constructing national identity, it's just sort of something I'd like you to keep in the back of your head a little bit as we go through. We're not going to focus on it necessarily from the fascism angle, but um, keep in mind that eventually this is where I'm kind of angling for as we work through this. Fair enough. Sounds yeah. good. Cool. Like, it's not an HI 101 unless I, I reach, like, absurdly, absurdly far back into the past to give ourselves a little bit of a context, right? So I, I guess the question that is really natural to get to after realizing that Italy is very, very young is, like, well, hang on. Isn't Italy, like, super old? Like, what about the Roman Empire, right? Right. And, like, yeah, it's true. The Italian peninsula had, you know, a, a special status under the Roman Empire. It was never actually, like, a, a province. You know, Rome is seated right inside the uh, the peninsula, and it's considered, like, a very, like, it has a special status in the empire, um, basically for as long as the uh, Roman Empire exists, to the point where, you know, later in the Western Roman Empire, Rome isn't even, like, a functional, like, administrative capital anymore, but they still tend to uh, to hold Rome as uh, a very important part of the empire, because that's where it starts, right? Like, the, the Latin tribes are, are, are defeated by the Romans, and, and they, you know, kind of spread from there. You get to the end of the 4th century CE, though, and you get the fall of the Western Roman Empire. You get um, various Germanic tribes coming down into the peninsula, into Spain. Uh, the defeat is, is uh, severe enough that the, the Western Empire, Empire functionally falls, right? And what you get in that era across all of Western Europe, but in, in Italy as well, is this sort of breaking up of territories into... Uh, smaller administrative areas. And some of them are going to remain under the leadership of like former Roman governors uh, and, and following those power structures. And other portions are going to be under Germanic rule. And Italy being sacked over and over and over at the end of the Roman uh, life cycle, uh, it ends up in the hands of these Germanic tribes, which very quickly become extremely civilized and, and uh, have very similar administrative ideas to uh, what Rome would have had, right? But it continues, the, the Italian peninsula, that is, uh, continues to hold cultural importance to what we would call the Byzantine Empire, right? Like the Eastern Roman Empire. That's part of Roman history that a lot of people sort of forget is that like, it, like Rome doesn't really fall until the fall of Constantinople, right? In the 15th century, uh, it just moves east, becomes more Greek and more uh, Orthodox Christian and uh, right. is ruled out of Constantinople. So for the first couple of centuries after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, these emperors seated in Constantinople are trying to take back the Italian peninsula and take back Rome because it holds that same cultural importance to them. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. And it's something that's like, it feels kind of obvious when it's stated out loud, but it's like, oh, it wasn't completely abandoned. I see. In the, I think uh, I have the advantage of us having ventured into this territory on a previous show. I'm trying to remember which one. Oh, goodness. Um, I'm trying to remember which topics we've done and which one it might have been. I, I don't tend to stick very, very close to the, uh, to the topic at hand sometimes. <sighs> Knights Templar? Or is that going back too far? Mm, you're talking like... 12th century there, but I could see how it might come up. In the 6th century, the Byzantine Empire finally, like, makes a, like, a full-throated, like, 
military push into the peninsula to try and retake Rome. And really what it ends up doing is kind of destabilizing the area. So what you end up with is this split of the peninsula where the Lombards, who are Germanic people, are, are in the north. They take uh, control of most of northern Italy. And then the Byzantines are uh, more or less in the south, but uh, you know not all of the south. They kind of have this band from uh, Ravenna to Rome kind of thing. So basically across the, the very middle of the boot. If you take the boot and divide it into threes, the Lombards more or less have the top third and the bottom third, with the Byzantines holding that section through the middle. And right. When they do this, it's interesting. The the papacy, the, the the Catholic Pope, is one of the oldest unbroken chains of succession in the Western world. And you kind of forget that it's there sort of almost between like the Roman Empire and like the Renaissance sometimes, because it's kind of like, what are you guys even up to, right? But the church held so much private land in that strip between Rome and Ravenna that they were actually the like by far the largest landowners in this Byzantine controlled strip. And so when Byzantium comes in and takes over a bunch of this land, the papacy actually takes this opportunity to consolidate its power over like this physical, like political region. And that's another thing about the papacy that that I think in modern times we don't really think of the papacy having any like political power, right? You've got, you know, Vatican City, but that's mostly symbolic, it kind of seems like, right? Yeah. The papacy is like its own state. Like, yeah, they're the head of the Catholic Church, but they're also like king of a chunk of of Italy. And this is like a weird administrative balance that they're gonna hold through most of the last two thousand years, honestly. They don't have a military presence of their own, do they? Oh certainly. Yeah, no, they have yeah. a, they have a military. Often the military will be mercenary in nature, or it'll be uh, volunteers from other Catholic uh, nations. So it would be almost like a sort of pilgrimage sort of thing. Uh, it, it's a way to serve the church by going to serve in the papal military. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, to this day, like the Swiss Guard, right? Right. I, mostly, mostly ceremonial kind of closer to a secret service now but like the reality is that the last papal armies are uh, were, were disbanded in like 1970 um, that's recent <laughs> that's very recent yeah yeah and and again it's kind of like what do you mean the pope had armies but yeah that was that was the reality of their of their rule for for centuries and centuries so while the while these while this region is technically under Byzantine control, realistically the Pope has direct control over it, and the Byzantines are kind of fine with this because at this point in history they're still Catholic and not like Orthodox Christian. They're under the Pope as much as any other Christian in in Europe, right? But the Pope also starts seeing various popes start seeing the slow weakening of the Byzantines in the region, because it's hard to maintain military control over a place that far away for a very, very long time, right? They start And seeing, I suppose with opposing uh, forces on, on both sides, yeah? That's right, yeah, the Lombards on both sides. They start seeing that weakening as like an opportunity to try and like exert more independence and political power, right? So they, to the point that... <laughs> Uh, Pope Gregory II uh, excommunicates Leo III in the 8th century, the, the emperor of, of Byzantium. It's over a minor ecclesiastical 
issue there's stuff going on with worship of icons in the in the east in this time period you can look at it through that lens certainly but you can also look at it as like you know he just excommunicated his own technical ruler and there's sort of a conflict of interest going on here right Right. um it's it's hard to say that that's like purely spiritual in nature by the eighth century the uh the byzantines have weakened to the point where the, the lombards drive out the byzantines entirely and the papal states are functionally independent at this point there's no one technically lording over them anymore now they would be invaded by the franks this is the same people of uh charlemagne and the Franks actually end up ruling the vast majority of Europe. And the way that the Pope kind of gets around this situation is by uh, making sure to be the one to crown Charlemagne in 800, when uh, Pope Leo III uh, crowns him Holy Roman Emperor. And what's th- what this is doing is um, setting up a really interesting power structure that's going to be very, very important to Europe for the next Uh, millennium or so, which is this idea that ruling power, sovereignty, is invested by God through the Pope. It's a really savvy move on the Pope's part, because what it does is even though he's technically a subject of the Holy Roman Emperor, he's also the one who grants authority for the Holy Roman Emperor to rule. That's some really good PR right there. It's very convoluted and like very advantageous to the Pope. Um, It makes a lot of sense looking at it through like a very cynical lens, right? Now, that's not to say that none of these people involved truly believed that divine right to rule is is the source of sovereignty, is the right of power, um, or the source of those things, rather. But it is also very politically advantageous for these people. Um, It's keeping them wealthy, it's keeping them landed, it's keeping them independent, and making sure that they're uh, out of a significant amount of danger, because now they're being protected by a very powerful entity that is also like beholden to them for authority. Time marches on, you get independent kingdoms in Naples, so the south of of, uh, Italy, uh, in Sicily, those uh, become, you know, Naples becomes independent in the 13th century, Sicily in the 12th century, Uh, the northern republics come up, so this is all the city-state models, so uh, Venice or Florence, Milan, Genoa, like these these places where you have that traditional, like, renaissance idea of you know there's the city and then there's the surrounding countryside that's owned by them it's very like mercantile in nature they're trying out different types of governments in these places you know this is the this is the italy of like leonardo da vinci right right and that's mainly a function of the fact that the north of italy as part of the holy roman empire was carved up into little bits, just like the rest of the Holy Roman Empire, which I'm sure we've talked about many times before, right? This idea Definitely. that, you know, you, you have two sons while you split your state in half and give one to one and one to the other. All of a sudden, Germany is two, three hundred different little principalities. <laughs> in 1454, you get something called the Italic League, which is a detente from years of warfare between all these little tiny states. If you If you go back to like the 1300s, like, Venice and Florence, like they hate each other and they are constantly at war with one another. There's this bigger threat of war with France. Essentially, there's this threat that the Bourbons are going to come in and wipe out Italy entirely or an independent Italy, at least. And so they basically stop fighting long enough to 
form a united front against France, which ironically has this effect. I mean, it's speculated, but most likely has this effect of hampering and hampering uh, coalescence of these states into a single political entity, because while you know, certain aspects or, or certain powers in Italy might have been strong enough to take the the entire peninsula. The fact that they all basically stopped for a, a, a number of decades in order to face this outside threat kept all of these smaller states independent and strong enough to survive uh, well into the modern period. So that's kind of where you get the Italy that we're going to be talking about under you know, the French Revolution. This is the Italy, more or less, that we're going to be talking about through unification. It's this uh, patchwork of various independent uh, republics and kingdoms that sort of share some commonalities, but in a lot of ways are more different from each other and and are more have more animosity towards each other than they do necessarily kinship. Interesting. I would have thought that they would have wanted to, I don't know, collaborate or merge together more in the face of a threat like that well let's say that you're venice and your army is maybe strong enough to take out milan but it's not strong enough to take out milan or and florence put together and you want to be the ones to take rome or sorry to take italy in your preferred direction you want a venetian italy how do you convince the others to let you guide that coalition in that direction? You kind of can't because the thing is that both Florence and Milan want a uh, Florence and Milan driven Italy respectively, and they want to do the same thing, but they realize that they don't have the individual power. Um, It's the Mr. Burns has all the diseases kind of model of statesmanship. (laughs) Uh, None of them can get through the door. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's this weird stalemate where, in, in a lot of ways, this is what Europe is going to strive for under the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, right? Like this idea of like spheres of power where you have your own sort of uh, great, you know, your great powers have their own spheres of influence that within them they're supreme, but they're not strong enough to take on all the other great powers. So that maintains this like uneasy balance of independence and keeps any one power from getting too far ahead, right? Italy is already doing that kind of accidentally a full 200 years before. Does that gotcha. make some sense? Because I think so, yeah. Because you want to think of these people in this time period not as Italians. You want to think of them as Neapolitans. You want to think of them as Sicilians. You want to think of them as members of their own respective political bodies, Identity is a weird and very fluid thing when we're talking about an international stage or level of thinking about it, right? And that's something that I do want to talk about quite a bit today. It's this idea of like, well, what makes somebody Italian rather than Venetian? What makes somebody, you know, what what makes them identify with that group? Because that idea of identifying as Italian isn't really there in this time period. It's similar how it's similar to the way that people will talk about like ancient Greece when that's not really an accurate way of talking about that area of the world. Like you were Athenian, you were Spartan, you were like, you know what I mean? You were not you had a sense of a wider Greek world, maybe, and you might feel kinship with uh, someone of another uh, city state over barbarians, but you certainly weren't 
considering yourself the same. Does that gotcha. help? Does yeah. that make sense? I think, I think that makes sense. Okay. By the time you get to the French Revolution, basically Italy is um, ruled by a bunch of Habsburgs, sort of junior branches of the house in the north. Uh, it's ruled by some Bourbons in the south. It's got the Papal States right in the middle, which is essentially independent, but ruled by the Pope, not by you know anyone who would consider themselves necessarily Italian. And you have a couple of small areas that are more or less independent, but that's the minority. And then the French Revolution happens. And why are we talking about the French Revolution when we're talking about Italy? I guess the, the short answer to that is that literally everything changes with the French Revolution in terms of uh, concepts from politics to religion to uh, uh, law to like it, it's such a it's such a profound change in Western thinking that it's very frequently considered like the single most consequential thing to have happened in history. And that's a hard thing to like wrap our heads around. So we'll try and keep it focused on the things that matter <laughs> the most. But the point is that the the French Revolution has a major impact on Italy and on the way that's on the ways that Italians think uh, thought about themselves in the 19th century. Some some of the things that the ideas behind the French Revolution, which are all you know Enlightenment era ideas, right? The French Revolution is essentially an overthrow of this old political order of uh, divine right to rule, of the um, sort of great chain of being. This idea that everyone has their place in the world and in society—it's—it's uh, it's a, it's a rejection of that idea based on some very influential thinkers who had been active in the earlier uh, 18th century, right? And a lot of it comes from like very base level civil unrest. You know, the government was broke. There were there were droughts and famines and that gets people angry and the government wasn't doing much to help. And that's sort of where, what kicks all this off. But what happens is that the leadership is co-opted by leaders who hold these Enlightenment uh, ideals very, very dear. And the American Revolution gets a lot of credit for this as well. That's happened in 1776 and was successful. And the fact that Enlightenment ideals were being used as a basis for government there is very, very inspiring to a lot of these French leaders. But a lot of the thinkers themselves are from France, like they are French think thinkers. And you get ideas, the, the, the kinds of ideas that are being debated in, in the revolution are like monarchy, like is heredity the best way to choose a leader? Or should we be basing this on merit? Maybe we should be choosing the best guy to do it, no matter who his dad is. You know? Balderdash. <laughs> uh, ideas like individualism. Does the individual matter in any meaningful way in society? Is a thing that's being debated here, right? Like, that's, that's a novel concept. And the reason for that relates back to monarchy, right? Before this time, you were a subject of the king. You're not quite property, but you're not far off either. I mean, they right. have this, well, I mean, they, they have the, the sort of social standing where the people to whom you are subordinate have a lot of say over the direction of your life in a lot of like very meaningful, like day to day ways. And that's a lot of your identity in the world before the French revolution. You're not necessarily French. You're a subject of the French King. And I know that sounds a little nitpicky, but the reality is that in this pre-French Revolution 
world, if you were on the border somewhere, every once in a while, oops, now you're the subject of this, you know, of the uh, Sardinian king. And your whole identity just changes. And it's like, well, guess I'm Sardinian now. Now, that might not really affect, you know, your family or the language you speak or how you go about farming your little plot of land, um, but it might affect which wars you have to fight in. It might affect how much of that food you have to give away to your your lords. That idea of identity is very, very mutable and you have very, very little say in it. Does that right. make some sense? I think so. I hadn't really thought of it that way before, but uh, it makes sense. The concept of natural law versus, you know, secular law uh, is is really heavily debated in um, in the French Revolution. That is, where do where do laws come from? And that starts picking at things like, well, what is society? Which is where you get thinkers like um, uh, Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau who are uh, discussing, you know, the nature of the social contract, right? Like the nature of what do governments do for us? Like what is the purpose of governance? And people are actually like sitting there talking all of this stuff out. And what this all starts driving towards if you're going to kind of put a single overarching label on it is something called liberalism. And that's often in, in like political science circles would be called like small L liberalism to kind of distinguish from uh, political parties that might use the liberal distinction or, or, or title today. Right. The liberalism of the 18th and 19th century is a very, very specific thing, which ironically is the sort of thing that's kind of associated with conservative movements today. So it's things like small government, it's things like personal liberties, it's things like uh, capitalism with as little uh, restriction on it as possible, things like that. It's this idea that you as an individual have agency and have sovereignty, that the government governs at the will of the people, that the main purpose of the government is to enforce the social contract. So it's there to make sure that when you make an agreement with somebody else, that agreement is enforced. It's there to make sure that property is protected. It's there to make sure that social norms are upheld. Um, because those are the things that are needed for a functioning society in the minds of the people who are uh, uh, making all of these revolutionary pushes, right? And I, I know I'm kind of getting at a lot of different ideas here, but what I'm sort of trying to get across too is the fact that like everything changes when the French Revolution happens. And not just for France and and not just because these men come along, but because when the French Revolution happens, France is like successful, you know, when the revolution happens, all the other European powers get together and they go, this is dangerous because they're all kings and stuff too, right? Like they are still dependent on this old order of uh, sovereignty, right? Their right to rule comes from, div uh, comes from divine sources, from heredity. Their uh, relationship with their subjects is coming from this top-down mentality, right? It's all this old stuff. But the fact that the French managed to not only put in place a government built on enlightenment ideals, but also the fact that they managed to repel all these other countries and maintain that government is... I mean, there's not really a big enough word for it. Like you could say revolutionary and that just sounds like a bad joke, but it's, 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 it's a, it's a paradigm change, right? It, uh, it completely changes the way the entire world or, or European world thinks about 
what government is and 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 who people are and all of this kind of gets back around to something i mentioned at the beginning which is the idea of nationality right because before like we just talked about you didn't really necessarily have a nationality if you belonged to a larger group something larger than your family or your immediate community that group might be people who speak the same language as you but the linguistic reality of of Europe in this period of time is a complete patchwork, right? Like, I think it's something like 12% of all French subjects at the time of the French Revolution actually spoke Parisian French. The rest of them spoke either a French dialect or a completely different language. Right. Now, they would all consider themselves French because they were all subjects of the French king. But if you're not a subject of the French king, well, what keeps you French, Right. So, so, you know, linguistic kinship, that only gets you so far out of, outside of your, like, people that you literally know, possibly uh, religious kinship, but part of the Enlightenment and part of the French Revolution is a reaction against religion, right? Uh, A big part of what the government does in the French Revolution is basically uh, strip the Catholic Church of all of its lands in France. It eventually allows priests back in, in a solely spiritual capacity, but the, the, the church overall, bishops, um, can't hold property anymore. And so you don't have bishops as petty lords inside France anymore. Now, that's something that was still happening in Germany, but like, okay, we're moving away from like religion as a source of your, as a source of your identity. Maybe if you were traveling to a completely different part of the world, but you know, it's, it's not really what makes you uh, a French person anymore. So you start moving beyond these ideas of, of, of kinship, of community, into, well, you can kind of go back to who rules you, and you're starting to look at, like, nationality based on statehood, right? Whose government are you subject to? Right. But you also have this ideal of government as being uh, the nation state, right? Like, this is really where the idea of the nation state solidifies. And that's this idea of, um, ideally, uh, every nation should have its own government like one one nation one government and that's really really difficult to do but there's kind of two ways you can resolve that ideal right one is that you can split the whole place up into as many tiny little governments as you possibly can balkanization essentially right the other is to build a sense of nationality that is bigger than Uh, the communities that people can realistically hold for themselves, right? And from the state top down, build this idea of national identity that coincides with the state. Do you kind of do that without religion, Mm -hmm. without language, and without basically forcing people? Essentially, yeah. You kind of have to make make them think that it's their idea. That's tough. Do you see where I'm kind of going with all of this, though? In terms, of like, so. in terms of like how Italy was at this point in time, in terms of how um, the ideas of the uh, French Revolution shake up the ideas of like national belonging, this is going to be a big problem for a very, very fractured Italy, right? Especially right. when yeah. we know the ending of this story, which is a unified Italy. <laughs> right. So what you need to do, and by the way, if you're ever looking for more information on this idea or this this concept behind nationalism which is kind of the one that i i sort of prefer there's a book called imagine communities by benedict anderson that's been in print since 1983 and is still being taught which is 
uh, unheard of for political theory. You know, there's there's been a lot of there's been a lot of development since 1983, <laughs> but it's such a good explainer of how the ideas of national identity work that it it just kind of still works. It's it's one of the best ideas behind how a building a national identity works. And what Anderson would say is that well, what you want to do is get everybody speaking the same language because that helps to foster identity. And you see that in France, the, the, you know, propagation of a standardized French, you want to, uh, educate people in a similar manner. You want mass media that is common to the entire area. So this is an era where you see, you know, newspapers becoming extremely important, newspapers and handbills, right? Um, literacy becoming extremely important to citizenship these things help you kind of conceive of other people in your nation as being community members, even if you might never meet them. And this isn't like a, this isn't a, an 18th and 19th century phenomenon. This is a thing that still happens today. It's the reason that you watch the Olympics and you cheer from, for somebody from the other side of the country, even though you don't know them or any of their family. Um, you don't know them any better than any of the, the the contestants, but well, we're from the same country, so they're the one that I want to win, right? It's kind of right. a crass way of putting it, but you can imagine some level of kinship there. Yeah. Let's get back to sort of the the fallout of this French Revolution, right? Because in 1792, uh, skirmishes between the French Republican Army and Piedmont Sardinia, which is which is one of the well, it was the independent kingdom left in Italy break out. They're fighting against France on the same side as Austria and on the same side as Russia to try and suppress this revolution that's happening in France. Other other com- uh, other countries in Europe have tried to deal with this kind of liberalization in different ways. You get the the entire run from, you know, the British parliament kind of creating a semi-constitutional monarchy, even though Britain doesn't technically have a constitution, but you get what I'm saying, like a a representative democracy built on top of a constitutional monarchy. Everything from that to like the Russian model of just like crack down on any possible dissidents and it'll probably (laughs) turn out fine. And we all know how well that went. Yeah. But in, in that case, you know, the czars are asserting this divine right to rule without tolerating any questioning of it, right? And so having France, just the very existence of France, is threatening to their rule. And so everybody's stacking up against France. The French army manages to have a pretty reasonable amount of success in, in uh, Piedmont, Sardinia. Uh, Napoleon actually takes control of the artillery division in 1794, and by 1796 is actually leading the entire Italian front of the Revolutionary Wars. Um, he, he makes general very quickly. I, I'm, there's, a, there's a quote out there. I forget who it was that said it, but somebody, somebody basically said, um, make that man general before he makes himself. Um, he, he was a very <laughs> talented and ambitious leader. And you and I spent a lot of time talking about him at one point. Um, Indeed. This is something that would have been mentioned in a sentence or two. Uh, as part of that, uh, as part of that topic, the Italian campaigns, Napoleon keeps going right through Piedmont Sardinia and actually attacks the the Papal States. This is both tactical and symbolic. Tactical because there's a significant amount of um, military power there. Symbolic because the French government has been trying to crush the Catholic Church uh, for the last several years, right? So, how much more symbolic can you get than attacking the literal seat of papal power? 
he ends up taking most of the peninsula before uh, heading off to Egypt. I don't know if you remember that part. Uh, he, was re- he was recalled by command. He went to Egypt instead. It's kind of <laughs> weird. There were some French setbacks after he left, but ultimately France managed to, managed to defeat Austria and kind of by proxy uh, Italy by 1800. There's like a number of like client republics that are set up in this area, uh, this, this uh, time. France was very fond during this, this time period of anywhere that they conquered, they would set up um, new republics with constitutions based on the French constitution. Their thinking being once the people have a taste of freedom, basically they won't be willing to go back. And they're not entirely wrong about that. Seems smart, yeah. This kind of culminates in the creation of the uh, the Kingdom of Italy under Napoleon, which is actually held uh, in like he he holds the title of King of Italy, basically the the entire northern half of the boot in you know at the, alongside his title of of Emperor of the French, and you know naturally defeated in eighteen fifteen, and the. Uh, the, the powers that be at the Congress of Vienna tried to put as much of Europe back to the way it was as they possibly could. But between the sort of military action of Napoleon, you know, doing things like ending the Holy Roman Empire and, you know, invading most of, of Europe and the sort of ideological invasion of the French Revolution ideals, there's not a lot of going back for Europe after this series of wars, right? So what does this all mean for Italy? It means that, for the most part, the power goes back to the Habsburgs and so on that happened to be ruling those areas when uh, Napoleon originally invaded. But the people there didn't exactly take uh, kindly to the idea of going back to a very old, oppressive idea of ruling. Because the thing about being ruled by the French was that, yes, they were in a client republic, but the French didn't actually in, like, involve themselves that much as long as you didn't oppose the French. People in Italy started reali- realizing that Austrian rule, Habsburg rule, wasn't necessarily what they wanted for those areas of the country for themselves. And there's this beginning of stirrings of Italian nationalism at this point in time. Basically, well, if every nation gets a state, why shouldn't Italians get their own state? We're basically just a province of Austria at this point, and that just doesn't seem right. Anti-Austrian art becomes really, really popular. There's early proposals for different forms that uh, a unified Italy could take, and that's where you start getting uh, these very early ideas of Italian nationalism. People like uh, Vincenzo uh, Gioberti, who proposes a confederation that's entirely under the leadership of of the Pope, so basically make all of Italy papal states. Uh, he was a priest, which is worth mentioning, but it also wasn't an unpopular idea of how Italy could look, an independent Italy could look. You have Cesare Balbo, who was a writer and politician who proposed a confederation of separate Italian states. So you would still have an independent Corsica, you would still have uh, an independent Milan, Naples, but they would be part of this Italian league, sort of modeled after what the uh, the German states had been doing uh, up until now, with uh, sort of a, a semi-independence, but under the the uh, top-down leadership of the Holy Roman Emperor. Right. 
And then you get leaders like Carlo Cataneo and Giuseppe, uh, Giuseppe Mazzini, who suggested a federal republic, basically a centralized democratic government. And Mazzini's ideas for what uh, this Italy could look like end up being very, very influential. Now, Mazzini is a politician. He's coming at this from a very political point of view, but with a with very much like an enlightenment outlook on what politics should be. He's not looking necessarily for a new sovereign ruler to create an independent kingdom that's ruled by divine right of God. He's looking for an Italy for Italians. He's looking towards an Italian identity. Right. This idea of like what Italian identity looks like. I don't want to give the impression that that is a widely held common understanding. There isn't really an Italian identity that people are going, this is what it means to be Italian. This is what we should be striving for. We want a nation that upholds X values, that it has X cultural characteristics. You know, these things are important to us as a people. That varies from person to person as they imagine a uh, united Italy. And for the most part, they are imposing their own smaller beliefs uh, or I mean smaller in terms of ge geography more than anything else onto a geographic area that is large enough that it can be independent from foreign rule. This is much more about opposing uh, the Austrians than it is about a cohesive Italian identity. Interesting. So setting themselves up uh, in opposition, the, the identity is almost a, a convenience of being able to uh, rebel against Austria. It's it's not as though this hasn't happened before. I mean, look at the American Revolution. You know, culturally speaking, what uh, what what uh, defines members of the thirteen colonies from British people? Not a whole lot, other than a disagreement over level of independence. Uh, it's a disagreement of politics, right? And what comes out of that is a national identity. It emerges from this independence of statehood. The Italians are essentially doing the same thing. It's just that they have a pre-existing, you know, it's it's not it's not like with the, the the colonists where they can basically say, and we're starting our whole new thing. The Italians are looking backwards to all these sort of Italian things, which is difficult because the last time they are, uh, you know, cohesive is under the Roman uh, Empire, essentially, which is not. You know, they don't share the same cultural beliefs as the Roman Empire. They don't have the same symbols. They don't have the same language or religion or, or you know, most of that stuff has just morphed so much over the past uh, uh, 1500 years that it's essentially unrecognizable other than like a shared history. But I mean, most of Europe shares that history, right? Spain has as right. much claim to it as, as Italy does. So it's really difficult to pin down exactly what it means to be Italian. Germany is going through very similar issues at this point, but they have people who are working on a very specific defining Germanness uh, project. Because while the political will for unification in Germany is uh, relatively weak, the people who would be interested in political unity are realizing and recognizing that a unified people have a better chance at political unity. So this is where you get movements of 
my favorite example is always the the Grimm's fairy tales where the brothers Grimm are basically going around all of Germany collecting folk tales and putting them together in these books where it's like see these are the tales these are the fairy tales that are common to all German people and they're sort of conjuring up this idea of a German people through a shared folk heritage other people are doing the same with music or literature and they're distributing it to people who are you know throughout German states and going like Maybe the people who are here right now don't think of themselves as just German, but maybe their kids will when they all know the same stories. <laughs> right. Interesting. Which, it maybe sounds a little grandiose for what they're doing specifically there, but they're also one small part of a much bigger machine there. Um, right. People are working away on, on all fronts. In Italy, on the other hand, it's very much like a, a, a political uh, endeavor from the outset. It's a, it's a we want independence from Austria, and the way that we're going to do that is by asserting our Italianness. In this era, you get the uh, emergence of the Carbonari. It's a secret society that is based in uh, modern liberal ideals, based out of the French Revolution, but actually has no ties to the French Revolution, which makes it a lot more palatable to Italians who got kind of burnt a little bit on some of the uh some of the more radical years of the uh of the revolution and then the subsequent uh napoleon raids right uh, you know they, they don't they don't necessarily love stuff to do with the french revolution but the carbonari are a are a uh entirely italian uh endeavor it's kind of maybe based on the the freemasons uh in terms of like their structure uh the carbonari by the way they're named after People working in the uh, the Alpine forests of Italy making charcoal, uh, carbonari like charcoal. Uh, carbonari is the same root as, as like carbon or also charred. So these interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was a whole like uh, trade to make charcoal. You know, you gotta you gotta you gotta burn the wood just the right way to get the best charcoal. Um, I know it sounds a little silly, but yeah, that was that was an actual uh, trade at one point. So similar to the Freemasons, it's based in a, a guild sort of idea. The Carbonari were um, radical. They were looking to overthrow existing systems, specifically the the Austrians. In 1820, they actually attempted a rebellion uh, in Naples against uh, King Ferdinand there, but they were defeated with uh, by uh, the Neapolitan army with uh, Austrian support, even though it was far south in a region that the Austrians didn't have as like as direct control, they recognized the like, how bad a, a, an insurrection would be for them, and sent a uh, an army to help support. So that defeat was quite bad. They tried armed insurrection again in 1831, this time against the Papal States, and this one was a little more uh, uh, successful in that a number of states, kind of on the periphery of the Papal States. Uh, they managed to split off and make into uh, independent states. The uh, the Pope at the time realized all of a sudden that they maybe didn't have as much power over the temporal part of their their power as they thought they did. Uh, that there were regions of Italy that weren't as devoted to them uh, as as they thought. But again, Austria comes down and crushes this rebellion, and open action kind of ceases at this point. They kind of realize that. Uh, military revolt isn't really possible against Austria because Austria still has one of the largest armies in the entire world. They're considered one of the five great powers, right? It's hard for a couple of small independent kingdoms to fight against them, and it's very hard for some informal uh, revolutionaries to fight against them. So it's just well, it sounds like there's still there's still smaller monarchies implanted mm -hmm. throughout 
Italy, right? And they're not into this either. No, not particularly. I mean, some of them are interested in, I, I mean, again, uh, Piedmont Sardinia is interested in a more independent Italy, but they're mostly in, interested in that for for selfish reasons. Um, most of the other ones have, uh, at least the leadership, the, the kings, have allegiance to Austria. They are, they are Habsburgs. So no, they don't want right. it at all. Yeah. There's a number of uh, Carbonari who are going to be very uh, influential as we go forward. I already mentioned uh, Giuseppe Mazzini. He was the uh, politician who was hoping to create a federal republic. He was part of the Carbonari, and he was actually jailed uh, for his role in the 1831 uh, uprisings. And he he abandons the the group publicly, at least, but also founds uh, a new organization. Uh, it's called Young Italy. And essentially, it's a uh, it's a group founded in its in absentia, like it's run entirely out of France. He's he's exiled from Italy for for his role in the uprisings, but they're they're advocating internationally for a uh, unified Italy and a republican Italy. Mazzini has a particularly uh, consequential uh, mentee, I suppose, named uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, who is going to be like, extremely important in the unification wars, um, who also uh, served as a, as a Carbonari, but barely managed to escape a death sentence in 1834 for his roles in, in uprisings. He, Garibaldi escapes to South America and spends the next several decades uh, in South America, fighting in various uh, uh, independence movements there and essentially training in revolutionary warfare, learning how to fight with guerrilla tactics, learning to fight uh, major powers who are maybe a little far away with small numbers of people. He's going to be important later. (laughs) (laughs) But in general, national sentiment, despite these uh, setbacks in uh, in attacks, uh, national sentiment towards unification grows. Then we get to 1848, and this year comes up in more topics than I'd care to point at. Um, I don't even know if I'll manage to do a singular 1848 topic ever because it's just it's really really big. But this is the year that's known as the spring of uh, springtime of nations. There's over 50 uh, separate and distinct uh, revolutions that break out in this year. If I have to summarize what's happening in 1848 in a general way, because keep in mind, each of these have very like uh, local rationales for breaking out. In general, you've got a lot of places in Europe that have seen France more or less kind of work for about 50 years now. And they, they've been looking at their own governments and going, hey, where's our constitution, essentially? They're, they're looking at things like the lack of political enfranchisement or involvement of citizens. They're looking at wealth disparities. They're looking at lack of social supports for uh, people who are less well off. Uh, some of them are ideologically against religion. Some of them are ideologically against uh, monarchies. There's a lot of different factors, but most of these people are asking for some form of constitution. And what they're hoping to achieve with a constitution is a measure of guaranteed rights. And they're looking for a measure of sort of consistent application of the law, what we would call rule of law. That's a that's a very rough summary of 1848 overall, but <laughs> it's what we're going to work with. There's also fringe elements of 1848. 
Some of them are people who are saying the revolution was a mistake. We need to go back to monarchy. Those people would be considered conservatives in this movement. There's also uh, a relatively new socialism movement here, which is very, very poorly defined. It's not the same thing as communism, but it's this idea that like liberalism doesn't even go far enough. Uh, the state should be doing more than just protecting our property and our rights. Uh, the state should be actively providing for us, but not in like a paternalistic, feudalist manner. They should be collecting communal resources and uh, distributing it to all people to make sure that nobody's left behind essentially. And the, right. the, the level of the, the, the different types and different levels of socialism that are at play in 1848 are, are, uh, very, very diverse. But this is, uh, by coincidence, mostly the year that Marx is going to publish the Communist Manifesto. So that gives you an idea of um, the the level to which uh, socialist ideas have been uh, developed to this point. It's they're, they're, they're new, but they're not unheard of. And so there are uh, socialist uh, tendencies in some of these revolutions as well. Arguably, the first civil disobedience of 1848 of this series of revolutions uh, could be uh, attributed to Italy, um, specifically the the Lombardy region. So, like Milan, Venice, that sort of northeastern, like the top of the boot, but the right side of the top of the boot. Right. They're so tired of Austrian rule that they decide to peacefully protest. Um, not even necessarily protest, but basically let their dollars do the talking. They all, in, not all, but like a significant percentage of uh, Lombards in the beginning of 1848, January 5th of 1848, they all give up smoke, smoking and playing the lottery on the same day. These are both significant sources of tax revenue for Austria. And it's this really intriguing form of, of uh, uh, protest against Austrian rule because like, what are you going to do? Force people to smoke? <laughs> like they're vice taxes, right? Like you can't, you can't enforce vice taxes. Vice taxes are this thing that you put on with the assumption that the, that your citizenry are going to be unable to shake those vices. And so it's sort of an opt-in tax, but you're counting on a significant percentage of people to just continually pay it, except they don't. And the Austrians don't really know how to react to this. Shortly after this, uh, Naples and Sicily both begin revolting. These two areas are known as the Two Sicilies. Um, it's a long story. Essentially, Naples was also known as the Kingdom of Sicily for a while, even though there was also the island of Sicily, which is a kingdom of Sicily. And when they were combined, they were, the king became known as the King of Two Sicilies. It's, it's dumb, but whatever. Here we are. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. There's always been this sort of, I mean, to this day, Sicily has this sort of, we're not quite Italians kind of bent to them. Like, yeah, of course they're Italian, but there's this like, there's this aspect of like Sicilian first to some extent. I do know some people from Sicily and I have found that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it is a, it is a well-documented thing. And I mean, I, I suppose being on an island kind of contributes to that to some extent, right? It's not the biggest barrier, but it's also not no barrier. Um, you, you do develop something of a, of a uh, distinct society out of it. They basically seized this opportunity to, to basically go like, well, we're going to be independent now. We're done with this whole foreign leadership thing. We're going to put our own, uh, 
uh, our own government in place. And this one does get violent uh, very quickly. There are also nonviolent revolts in Tuscany, which resulted in the king of Tuscany basically just handing them a constitution. Please take the constitution. Stop revolting, please. Uh, don't overthrow me. Uh, this is, by the way, a, a way that a lot of powers would react to 1848 to the point that like 1849 is full of places being like, hey, that constitution that we gave you, we're rolling that back, actually. I know we said we'd give you a constitution, but actually, no, it was just like a self-preservation move. Right. Pope Pius IX, uh, who is actually like considered a very progressive pope when he's first elected, like he was actually a, a fairly big proponent of liberal ideals, which is an interesting thing. Uh, often you kind of consider the, the church to be a relatively uh, conservative organization, right? He kind of proactively decided to create a constitution for the papal states to make it somewhat more you know, oriented towards enlightenment ideals. And he put that in place in February, uh, February 21st. Oftentimes in histories of 1848, people point to uh, King Louis-Philippe of France being driven out of Paris on February 23rd as like the real beginning of everything. By the time that happens, February 23rd, we have four different constitutions already in place in Italy. Italy gets going early on 1848. Um, the king of Sardinia, uh, at this time it's uh, Charles Albert, calls on Venice of Milan, or Venice and Milan, to support a war against Austria for Italian independence. This is going to be known as the First Italian War of Independence. This is too far for the the Austrians. They've had enough for it. They roll over the Sardinians so quickly that war is over by July. Um, it's it's done. <laughs> it goes real bad for them. Um, and. You know, this is kind of how the rest of 1848 goes. Like the first half of 1848, it was kind of like, oh, is this thing happening? And then the second half, more conservative leaders start rallying and, and regaining power. Things kind of blew up for Pius IX. The people actually living in the Papal States went, hey, you know what? Constitution is great. You know what else would be great? How about a republic? You're not our king anymore. How does that sound? We do like the democratic thing. And Pius IX was like, wait, what? No, that's not how this works. I'm the, I'm the Pope. Like if anyone's got divine right to rule, it's me. He did not like this. This went really badly. Relations soured between Pius and uh, revolutionary leaders in the papal states to the, to the, to the point where um, he was actually driven out of Rome by angry mobs and the French army had to intervene on, on behalf of the Pope to basically keep people from killing him. And this is going to basically ruin the idea of liberalism for Pius IX for the rest of his entire life. I, I can't <laughs> imagine why, but you know, by August, all uprisings in Italy are officially crushed. Um, and you know, 1848 will continue in other places, but it is this moment where people all over the peninsula realize like, Oh, okay. Maybe there's something here. Because, you know, one one place rising up is is one thing. That's just unrest. The entire peninsula in flames is a completely different thing. There seems to be something of a national will here. Now, the character of that nation is still very much in question, but there's something. And maybe we can work with that, right? Right. The, the oppositional character of that nation specifically mm -hmm. seems pretty strong at that point. Certainly. Absolutely. But it's the anti-Austria part, it, it's a kernel. It's enough to hold on to. So 1848 is ultimately a failure. 
first war of Italian independence, complete failure. But some really important lessons are learned. So what do we learn from 1848? We learn that the Italian military really lacks compared to Austria. It's probably not going to go well. However, based on other things that happened in 1848, uh, the Italians realized that France is a potential ally against Austria. The French and the Austrians have been enemies for centuries, ever since the Bourbons and the Habsburgs were bitter enemies, right? Like that's that is a long-standing rivalry, and it didn't go away just because of the revolution. They learned that the Pope was an enemy to the idea of a united liberal Italy. Now, if you wanted to go with that priest's idea of like an entire Italy of papal states, maybe he would be on board. But that doesn't seem to be what most of the people in Italy are fighting for. There's at this point kind of two prevalent ideas, one being uh, a republic and the other being a sort of constitutional uh, monarchy of some sort with a sort of liberal framework placed over monarchical power. They've also learned that republicanism is really only as strong as the military backing it, which is why the French have so much success with it and everybody else doesn't. It's seen as an existential threat. And it's really interesting to consider it that way, that the idea of a, a representative democracy founded on liberal ideals uh, ideals is considered an existential threat to power in, 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 uh, in Europe at this point in time, right? That's right. essentially the foundation of most modern political entities, but yeah. it's a, it's this dangerous subversive thing at this point. Um, <laughs> history, man, it's crazy. So from a safety perspective, from like an international perspective, international perspective, that means that likely the best bet for Italian unification and independence would be a constitutional monarchy. So that's probably the best way to go. And the best candidate to lead that, because you need a king if you're going to have a constitutional monarchy, is almost certainly Piedmont Sardinia. Piedmont Sardinia is the strongest kingdom in Italy at this point in time. It's also the most independent. Because other than that, sort of the main groups you have are Lombardy, which is a series of states that are under indirect Austrian control. You have the Papal States, and he's not willing to play ball. And you have uh, the two Sicilies which sort of have their own uh, flavor, but the kings there are technically bourbons going way back and aren't really that far removed from French influence. So Piedmont Sardinia is very much seen as, as the, the way to go for this. A man named Camilo Benso, who's uh, he's actually a count in Piedmont Sardinia, uh, Count Cavour, took all this information and he went hard to work, beginning with uh, the foundation of a newspaper called uh, Il Resorgimento, uh, The Resurgence, which is uh, advocating for a unified Italy, for an Italian identity, which in a lot of ways is Sardinian identity. But, you know, the terminology matters here. You can't get somebody uh, from Naples on board with uh, Sardinian independence. You can get them on board with Italian independence. And so that's right. where we're going to angle for this. Cavour is also made uh, prime minister in 1852, and he begins brokering allegiances with other major powers with an eye specifically towards the unification of Italy. He's very much taken these uh, these lessons of 1848 to heart and uh, has taken it on himself to work with the, the new king, uh, Victor Emmanuel II. Um, uh, the previous king actually abdicated after the end of 1848 uh, based on his failures in the wars of independence. But uh, 
yeah, Cavour and uh, Victor Emmanuel decide to go to work on uh, once and for all uniting Italy, uh, bringing them together as one nation uh, and making sure that they are at the head of that nation. So why don't we take a quick break there? And when we come back, we'll uh, take a look at how Cavour and Victor Emmanuel go about trying to um, make a single entity out of all these disparate parts. Sounds good. Back on HI101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. And we've been talking about Italian unification, which is interesting because we haven't talked a lot about Italians or Italy as a as a monolith up to this point. In fact, what we've been talking about is mainly how different a lot of these par- portions of the of the peninsula have been. Yeah, kind of seems like it doesn't exist yet. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's very very fair to say. What what we're going to be seeing going forward is in a lot of ways very similar to what we would see in Germany, where you know the the Prussian crown sort of takes lead on the unification of Germany, and some critics might complain that you know the 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 newly formed uh, German Empire is is kind of just the Prussian Empire, and everybody else got scooped into it, which is. A valid criticism, but at the same time, there's a lot of work that's done before that unification in Germany to make sure that, you know, there's an idea of Germanness that's in that's in place. And yeah, you have one political entity that sort of gobbles the other ones up, but they, they spend the they spend the decades before that unification working on you know, things like free trade between the German states to make sure that the that the uh, economies are interlocked or creating railroads to make sure the free travel is, a, is an option to make it seem like it's a unified space, right? That's sort of the, that, that's the kind of thing that's not really happening necessarily in Italy. What you're seeing is mainly action from this kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia, which we haven't spent a lot of time talking about. Piedmont Sardinia is this strange little amalgamation of a kingdom which uh as the name would suggest uh encompasses the the island of sardinia which is the second largest uh uh, italian island it's the one that's kind of off to the west of the boot but it's the bigger of the two the top one is corsica the bottom one is uh sardinia Um, i'm not gonna lie i took advantage of the uh interlude to uh look at a map of italy <laughs> it's tough in a it's tough in a uh in an audio context eh? like it's I'm, I'm doing my best with the boot thing but you know uh here we are so yeah it, it it does have that that island in there it also has a region of italy as it stands today it's basically the the top of the boot where it flares out it's the left side of that it's sort of the the area around the city of turin if you're familiar with where that is. Um, However, in this period of time, it also contains uh, states that are now part of France, including Savoy and Nice. Um, So a good chunk of that, like, French Riviera kind of country, like the the south of France, the seaside. Right. There's a good chunk of what is now France that is Italian. And that's one of those spots where we talked about the difference between like a nation state and a pre-nation state where honestly, if there was a good enough reason for it, the French crown didn't really have a problem uh, giving Nice to Piedmont Sardinia. I mean, maybe somebody got married and it was part of a trade 
uh, deal uh, wrapped up in that. Maybe a war was won or lost. I, I, I honestly, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I don't remember on this particular case why uh, Savoy and Nice were part of Italy rather than France. Um, but the point being that those lines are very fluid. Like we, we would have talked about this with Napoleon, right? With the idea of um, Corsica and whether or not we're talking about it as a, a French state or an Italian one, right? These things kind of shifted around and it was not really that big a deal for the people at the top necessarily. Um, but the, for the people that lived there, uh, it could make a big difference. And once you get to the idea of uh, a nation state, you get people, for example, in France looking at Nice going, well, French people live there. That should be part of France. It's an instinct that comes up a lot in the 19th century as uh, national consciousness comes up in, in a number of places. And this is this is where you get, you know, conflicts between Alsace-Lorraine, between France and Germany. This is where you get, you know, all these all these little disputed areas. So based on where... Uh Piedmont is. Yeah. Uh, isn't that kind of the entry point to Italy from France? Wouldn't they have gotten a little bit wrecked in previous wars? Oh, yeah. Just as a result of the geography? Yeah, yeah. It was not necessarily a great spot to be if you're, uh, if, if France is trying to get further down in the boot anywhere. Um, yeah, that is a, that is a region that would get passed through quite a bit. However, that importance to trade also helped keep it independent because there's a me- there's a measure of incentive for France to make sure that it doesn't fall under uh, foreign occupation uh, or, or influence, unless maybe their own, but they wouldn't consider that meddling necessarily, just, you know, national interest. Um, <laughs> you know how these things go. Uh, but yeah, in general, I, I mean, they had the uh, the largest army out of any Italian states at this point in time. They were uh, independent. They were fairly well positioned to take a leadership role in unification, which is why Cavour takes such a leading role in this. He feels that it's not only his mission to try and unify Italy, but it's also uh, that he's got permission a little bit because he's in such a high position of power within uh, Piedmont Sardinian government. Uh, right. If not him, then who kind of thing. In 1855, he makes a big move, which is uh, convincing uh, Victor Emmanuel to support Britain, France, and the Ottoman Empire in the Crimean War against Russia. This is a pretty big step into like great power politics. This isn't normally the kind of thing that an Italian state would bother themselves about. And in reality, they had no stake in the war. There was nothing really to be gained from the war itself specifically. And so it's kind of like, well, why fight Russia? Like, why would you ever fight Russia when you don't need to? Usually a bad idea. And like, the point isn't that war specifically. The point is that it gave Piedmont Sardinia a, a measure of legitimacy in the eyes of these great powers. Like, oh, they stepped up and contributed to this thing that matters to us. Maybe we should pay some attention to them. And it was important enough that they gained a couple of favors out of the deal, which is really what Cavour was looking for. Interesting. He calls this favor in in 1859 when uh, Napoleon III, uh, we're back to a uh, we're back to an empire. This is the second French empire. They go back and forth a lot. Uh, Napoleon III signs the secret agree- agreement with Cavour, basically promising uh, Piedmont Sardinia uh, military support against Austria in exchange for another favor. This 
is all Kavor is looking for. He's happy to go ahead with this. Now he's got France on his side. They intentionally provoke uh, Austria in um, with a series of military maneuvers right on their border, basically, basically taunting them. You know, the the Sardinian army is maybe half the size of the Austrian army uh, at this point in time. Like they're not big enough really to to do anything meaningful to Austria. But you know, Austria is led by some very prideful people, and and it was finally enough that they declared war on Piedmont Sardinia and sent in uh, sent in the troops. Austria at this point in time, though, as big as they are, are also not really the most efficient power. That's the sort of thing that you're going to see a lot in like World War One, right? Where like a lot of the times the talk about Austria is kind of like, well, they were there at the beginning of the war and then they really didn't do much after like the first defeat. And a lot of their problems were like logistic. Okay. That was already evident in, in the late 1850s. It took Austria, it took them 10 days to travel 80 kilometers. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the kind of efficiency we're talking about. So, um, yeah, the, the, the Austrians invade uh, Lombardy, Venetia uh, on the 26th of April. By the 3rd of May, France has already declared war in support against the Austrians. So by the time France uh, gets to Turin, or sorry, by the time Austria gets to Turin, uh, the French, French army has already reinforced the Piedmont army. And they're able to defeat Austria in a series of uh, about three battles. There's a very decisive uh, one using, you know, all the troops on the field at Turin. Um, and it drives the, the the Austrians back. At this point, though, we actually get into someone that we talked about in the first uh, portion, uh, Garibaldi, who has returned, actually returned in 1848 when he heard things were starting to get a little wild with the uh, with the revolutions and thought, well, this, you know, my time has come, right? I, I'm 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 the man to lead this. This is the this is the fellow who was in South America. That's the guy that was in South America. Ever since 1848, he's basically been looking for an excuse to fight the Austrians. And in this time, he spent he spent most of it training a group of guerrilla fighters uh, called the Hunters of the Alps. And they, you know, live rough up in the mountains and they're they're, you know, prepared to defend Italian independence at all any and all costs kind of things. And the Austrians are driven back by the French armies right into the arms of the hunters. And the hunters actually managed to uh, defeat the Austrian army in two more uh, battles. Now, they're not, you know, this isn't Waterloo, right? Like, this isn't like the entire army is defeated and it's like, oh, well, this is extremely decisive. But what it is is incredibly embarrassing because the hunters managed to uh, maneuver the Austrian army into places where numerical advantage doesn't really matter that much and fought smart with small numbers of people as we as we talked about before but it's so incredibly embarrassing like not only have they been defeated by like a french supported official army now they're getting hit by sort of tacitly endorsed guerrilla fighters and revolutionaries right and as one of the major bastions of old world power i mean keep in mind the, the emperor of austria is the former holy roman emperors right when they dissolve the holy Rem roman empire they become the austrian empire there's as much stake in the divine right to rule there as basically anywhere else in europe so being defeated by revolutionaries is sort of their worst nightmare in a way it's incredibly embarrassing for them the war is over by july so this is like a three-month affair not even 
the Austrians were too proud to make any peacetime concessions to Piedmont Sardinia. So they essentially surrendered to France, who negotiated terms that they would surrender uh, Lombardy-Venetia. So that's going to include basically all of the northern major cities, minus Venice. They hang on to Venetia. But the majority of like the top of the boot is now surrendered from Austrian control. France turns around and immediately, like there isn't even any time in between, immediately gifts it straight to Piedmont Sardinia. So now Northern Italy is fairly complete, honestly. Jeez, some some favor for uh, for France to be that nice to uh, to Piedmont Sardinia. Yeah, well, the other the other shoe's going to drop in a moment here. Um, <laughs> Sardinia takes advantage of the power vacuum that shows up in northern Italy because there's all these like remember all those states that during 1848 uh, or sorry during 1830 actually um, split away from the papal states. Um, and declared independence. They were like these central Italian states. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was a it was a sentence or two. But those places that were already kind of on shaky ground in terms of how much power the Pope held over them, they had gone back to being papal states. But like, you know, it's kind of like threatening to quit your job. Like, once you've done it, you should probably just do it because <laughs> everyone knows that you're looking. Um. Those states basically stayed attached to the Papal States after 1830 out of fear of the Austrians because they assumed that if they declared independence and uh, weren't ruled by the Pope, then the Austrian-led states up in Lombardy would come down and, and take them over, essentially. They didn't think they had enough power to maintain independence. Now that the Austrians were gone, Piedmont Sardinia essentially annexed all of those former independent states uh, away from the Papal States. So the political power of the papacy drops immediately, very quickly. This does not endear um, the Pope any further to liber liberal ideals. <laughs> he was already having a hard time, but now he's just losing land and this kind of sucks for him. He's not enjoying it at all. He starts basically denouncing, and this is Pius IX, by the way, just to refresh your memory. He basically starts denouncing all the evils of liberalism and how it's a plague on humanity, etc., etc., etc. But he very much gives the impression that this is a personal grudge that he holds. Um, right. I mean, there may be ideological things there as well. And, and he may even believe that it's that, but you know, never forget that he was on board right up until the moment that people suggested that they might have, uh, you know, the right to vote. Um, you know, the other shoe that I was talking about drops in 1860, once Sardinia manages to kind of solidify this hold over all of its new territory, they turn around and Cavour makes good on his promise to France and cedes back both Savoy and Nice to France. So Sardinia loses, I'm going to say, about a third of its original size to France in exchange for gaining all of this new territory in the Italian peninsula. Interesting. That's, that's a deal. Yeah. And it's an interesting one because basically, in a lot of ways, Sardinia wins here and Austria loses. But France isn't mad. 
because what they get is some historically French territory with French people living there. And that right. in, in this new order of the ideal nation state is a good thing. They don't mind helping out Italy if it means the peaceful recovery of French territory. That's a good thing. Yeah. Yep. Austria's mad, though. Let's not forget that. Yeah. Part. Yeah, that seems that seems appropriate for them. And that's and that's a benefit for the French, too, because they don't like Austria. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> Sardinia comes out way far ahead, though, because what they've done is essentially a good chunk of the work towards unifying the Italian peninsula, except even before that, that even before that's done, like in name, they've made a significant chunk of the boot Sardinian territory, not Italian territory. Right. Which is going to give them a leg up later. There is one person that's really unhappy with the deal of Cavour uh, cuts, though, and that's uh, Garibaldi. See, here's the thing. Garibaldi is about as much of a true believer as I've ever seen in a revolutionary, to be perfectly honest with you. He's got very little in the way of personal ambition, which is really interesting. That's a rare trait in revolutionaries. And beyond his singular drive towards uh, a unified Italy and an Italian identity, there's not a lot of other stuff going on in his life, like, at all. <laughs> but, like, he's he's so, like, he's so, he's so driven by all of this stuff that it's about as close to, like, a pure patriot as I think you can kind of get, especially for a nation that doesn't really exist yet. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, yeah... It's an interesting thing. Like he's 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 a believer in the Italian nation, while Cavour is a believer in the Italian state. That being said, Garibaldi was born in Nice, and his conception of the Italian identity includes Nice. I see. And Cavour just gave it away. That seems problematic. Sure, if you are Garibaldi. Now, if you are... For him specifically. For him yeah. specifically. Now, if you're an Italian patriot who uh, lives in Milan, you, you're, you're happy. You're celebrating in the streets. You just became part of Italy again, a free Italy. That's great news for you. If you are, you know, like if you're part of those papal states, amazing. You're so happy. Tuscany, great. It's just that Garibaldi is fighting for an Italy that basically just rejected him as Italian. And he's struggling with that. He hates Cavour. To the point that it might have caused problems if Sardinia didn't catch another lucky break. Which is that in 1860, through a, completely, a complete coincidence, it has nothing to do with anything else that we've talked about so far, a law is put in place in Switzerland, which requires all Swiss mercenaries to return to Switzerland. The vast majority of the troops of the two Sicilies are Swiss mercenaries. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, I mean, these are small states. Like hiring mercenaries is a is a very very common thing. The idea of like a, a standing professional army is a very modern one, right? Like that's you know that that's a thing that takes vast uh, national resources to pull off, and also requires like a pretty big population to pull off. A lot of places got by by hiring professional mercenaries. And if you look at the two Sicilies, who are they fighting? Really? You're talking about the you're talking about the island of Sicily and you're talking about 
the kingdom of Naples, which is basically the bottom third, let's say, of the boot. Right. I mean, they care about their navy. They do. They very much care about their navy. Their army? Any other time, it's like not necessarily the most important part of their national defense. Um, so having a bunch of Swiss mercenaries, and by the way, the Swiss considered top-tier mercenaries, that was more than sufficient. I mean, the only thing that's really to be worried about if you're hiring mercenaries is whether or not you can pay for them. And Francis II was paying for them, so it was fine. Until again, 1860. They're, with, they're, they're withdrawn. All of a sudden, Two Sicilies has a severely hampered military. The military that's left behind are native troops, and frankly, they're considered pretty unreliable by most European standards. So, Victor Emmanuel goes to Garibaldi and says, Listen, you can be upset about the Nice thing, or, with my blessing, you can go to Sicily and you can start helping them realize their national consciousness. <laughs> and again, Garibaldi is so much of an Italian patriot that he decides that, yeah, that is actually a better use of his time than getting upset at Cavour over all of this stuff. It's not to say that nothing was happening in, in Sicily before Garibaldi gets there, specifically in like the island of Sicily, that one of the two Sicilies. Uh, there are some nationalist uprisings that are occurring once the military is not keeping a lid on things to some extent, right? Sicily was looking for independence from Naples. And what they discover very quickly is Garibaldi landing in Palermo with like a thousand soldiers ready to help them take that independence. And yeah, it's put under siege fairly quickly by Neapolitan soldiers. And then... After a couple of weeks, the tide turns, Garibaldi starts commanding more and more men who are flocking to his banner, and they manage to take the entire island of Sicily away from the Neapolitan army. And Sicily is ecstatic over this development. And Garibaldi goes, why stop there? Crosses the strait and lands in Naples and immediately starts driving back the army there as well. He ends up in the city of Naples, like taking Naples itself, within four months of his initial arrival in Sicily. It's very, very fast. Things crumble Impressive. quickly. And I mean, a lot of this speaks to like massive domestic problems within the two Sicilies. You know, there's a there's a moment relatively early on in all of this where Francis II is is, you know, in a very familiar move, wildly promising constitutions to his subjects. And it's just too little, too late. They turn to Garibaldi as like a he's a he's a he's a hero when he enters. He's almost mythical status, right? Like this is the man who drove out the Austrians. Never mind the reality of the situation, which is that a French a French backed army did most of the work. Garibaldi's the hero. Francis II retreats with uh, with forces to the countryside, and it's going to be a very long time before they're defeated. But uh, Garibaldi installs himself in what he calls the uh, uh, the role he, he assigns to himself as the dictator of Sicily. And it's worth keeping in mind here that this is a man who's pointing back to Italian heritage and therefore, in a certain sense, Roman heritage. The word dictator has slightly different connotations than we might consider it to have in modern day. Dictator is pointing to this idea of having emergency powers to 
basically take care of, of uh, emergency situations until willingly handing it back over to the people. This is the, the concept that would have been used in Republican Rome, right? I see. Okay, yeah, because dictator did not seem like an overly complimentary title to give himself. This is the reason that I explained it. Uh, Yeah, I I know the optics today looking back are bad, but it was a very deliberate title that he's giving himself. Basically saying, listen, I'm in charge of this occupation until this is handed back to the rightful rulers of Italy. There's a problem, though. The army of uh, Naples isn't able to hold the entire kingdom, but they are absolutely able to hold out against the forces that Garibaldi has managed to raise. There's no way that like once they concentrate in one area around the king that Garibaldi is going to be able to defeat them. So Garibaldi requests support from Piedmont Sardinia. The problem is that it's specifically the, the, the papal states. The Papal States still stretch across the entire peninsula, which means that in order to cross into uh, the Kingdom of Naples, the Sardinian army would have to cross through the Papal States. I thought they'd taken a bunch of the uh, uh, independence. It just it wasn't like enough to make yeah, there's, uh, there's, across the entire ribbon. That's right. They They kind of pushed the Papal States southward rather than cutting you know the the papal states still reach all the way from sea to sea um but it it just made them a a lot shorter north to south right the problem with calling the 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 sardinian army through the papal states is that garibaldi was an ardent anti-catholic he thought that the 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 pope was the worst thing to have ever happened to to italy um he he had made he had made significant threats in the past and I mean, part of this is like, uh, you know, that that standard enlightenment secularism kind of thing. But part of it is that he saw the Pope as standing in the way of a unified Italy, which had kind of been proven in 1848. Right. Like that's one of the lessons that's one of the big lessons taken away from 1848 was the Pope is not our friend here. So, you know, you've got the Pope who on, on one hand is looking at Piedmont Sardinia, who's taken a bunch of his territory. So that's what he's got to the north, gathering on his borders with a giant army. On the south, you've got, you know, this madman who's just overthrown a kingdom with a fairly lo- a fairly small number of soldiers who's making literal death threats. And then you've got that army on the top saying like, oh, just let us pass through. We won't hurt you. We're just we're just going through. Like, are you going to call off your troops? No, like, <laughs> absolutely not. Um. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tricky situation, and and what what happens to to resolve it finally is Cavour again, kind of this. It's interesting some of the parallels between Cavour and like uh, Bismarck in in Germany. This idea of like this this architect of statehood, right? Um, Cavour is playing a fairly similar uh, role in a lot of this stuff. Cavour realizes that his best bet is turning back to France for support. They basically agree to allow French troops to pass through Piedmont and into the Papal States to reinforce uh, the Papal army. So now they've got a big enough army that the Pope isn't really scared of the Sardinian army anymore. Mm. um, With the Sardinians guaranteeing Papal independence. Now, Garibaldi throughout all of this is making a whole bunch of statements about how uh, Italy will never be complete without Rome, which is an interesting argument to make because, of course, from like a nationalist perspective, what is Italy without Rome? 
But from a functional political perspective, you got to beat the Pope to take Rome. And that's a trickier proposition. Seems impractical. Seems impractical is right. I completely agree. Um, so the Sardinians are like, okay, are we good to go now? The Pope goes basically, actually, no, I still don't want you coming through. Changes his mind on the whole thing. And there's a skirmish between the French-led papal army and the Sardinians. It doesn't really amount to a whole lot. The Sardinians barely managed to defeat the papal army and then just say, look, we did the skirmish thing. We're literally just going around, I promise you. And they go around and nothing actually happens with the papal states at this point. But there's still this fear uh, from Leo, or sorry, Pius IX, uh, that, you know, his time is limited at this point. The Sardinians get down into uh, Naples, defeat the Neapolitan army. There's going to be three more months of, of fighting before things are locked down. And there's going to be years of insurrections in Naples. But by 1861, functionally, the uh, entire peninsula is under Sardinian control. With the major exceptions, two major exceptions of Rome and Venice, which are big exceptions. This is a problem. Right. Venice is still uh, Austrian and uh, Rome is still the center of the papacy with some land extending pretty much all the way across the middle. That's correct. When when uh, Victor Emmanuel arrives in Naples, he's greeted by Garibaldi, who greets him as not the king of Piedmont Sardinia, but the king of Italy, shakes his hand and uh, relinquishes his title as dictator of Sicily. And then he retires go. to an island. He's done, in his mind, at that point, at least. He's I mean, a, he, he, he accomplished a fair bit. He's a weirdly, like, pure revolutionary, which is, I, I find so interesting. You know, not to say the man didn't have his faults, it's just like, you know, usually you're angling for some sort of position out of this stuff. Despite not being under Italian control, Rome is declared the capital of the United Italy, sort of in, in absentia. Um, Victor Emmanuel's putting out his kind of intention to one day own Rome. Cavour dies about three months after this consolidation in 1861. Uh, malaria, I believe. I, I think he insisted on being bled, too, until the bleeding killed him, essentially. Um, he was only 50, but he, he at least died considering his life's work complete. He saw what he had accomplished as, as uniting Italy, essentially as much as he ever expected to. But yeah, the rest of the story is uh, is is free of Cavour's influence. Interesting guy. So as we mentioned, Venice and Rome are still outstanding at this point. And, you know, it, it's interesting because they, you know, politically speaking, Rome isn't a terribly important city. It's not the largest city in Italy. It's not the wealthiest city by a long stretch. It's not strategically important. Like, it's not necessarily... You know, you don't have to hold it to hold the entire peninsula. Uh, uh, Victor Emmanuel's seat of power is up in, in Turin. Like, there's no there's no real reason to worry that much about Rome unless you're looking at it from the perspective of building a nation, in which case pointing to the past of Rome is essential. You need Rome to have an Italian identity when you're fashioning it from scratch, Right. To a similar extent, Venice has a has a, a similar place 
in Italian consciousness, right? It's a very important city when you think of like the, the history of, it, of Italy. And while you don't necessarily need it to have a, a, a united Italy, Italian, you know, people who are working on this idea of Italian identity and Italian nationalists are basically arguing that it's not really Italy without Venice. But Rome is tricky politically, right? Because the French troops are still supporting the Pope. There's also the issue of Catholic popularity. I mean, uh, Italy is overwhelmingly Catholic. And you have this this weird spot where in order to fulfill your national identity, you have to invade a religiously important uh, city and attack a very important religious uh, figure uh, to do so. And so you're at this bit of a crossroads in terms of building an Italy, which is, well, which part of Italy is more important to Italian identity? It's solidarity. It's solidarity as a Catholic nation, which, as we talked about, is religious based and kind of seen as on the out and out in Enlightenment thinking. Or is this idea of the body politic united, you know, physically, politically, nationally, more important? And Italy, as a brand new baby nation, kind of decides that it's the second one. You need to have Rome. And I think that speaks to the level to which, like, Roman history plays a central part in this constructed Italian identity. Garibaldi comes out of retirement like two years later because he basically feels like taking Rome isn't going fast enough. <laughs> in reality, what's happening are intense negotiations between, I suppose we can now call them the, the Italian court or the Italian government uh, and France to figure out a way to gracefully extract France from the situation. Because it's one thing to attack the Pope. It's another thing to attack France. They might be able to take the Pope. They probably can take the Pope. They can't take France. That's for sure. And as much as the French Empire has kind of been about, or as much as the French Revolution was kind of about kicking out Catholicism, I, I think that uh, the French government sort of sees themselves as being beholden to uh, the, the tradition of, of supporting the papacy. Because there's no... Because for them... In, a, in an identity sense, there's no cost really to pointing to a French past as a Catholic nation. Not the same way that there's an Italian political cost, which is not holding control of that territory. Right. So we're at a tricky little spot where it's more important to France that a city landlocked by Italy remains independent than it is to Italy that a religiously important city remain independent. It's a it's a weird little tangle of, of uh, identity equations, you know? Yeah. In 1864... Oh, oh, Garibaldi, yeah, I, I forgot. Garibaldi comes out of uh, retirement and essentially grabs a, a handful of men and attacks Rome on his own. It goes really badly. He's injured and imprisoned. Um, oh, no. Not, not for long. He's basically let out when, once he heals up from his injuries but like basically the government takes him aside and is like listen you retired like we're not going to tell you what's going on but we're working on it okay like just, just be patient we're working on it <laughs> in 
1864, there's something called the September Convention negotiated between Italy and France, which is, it basically says the French troops will withdraw within about two years, uh, giving Pius time to build up his own papal army. And at that point, like they're giving two years notice, essentially. Italy says, sure, that's fine. We can wait two years. Um, you know, slowly like shoving uh, Garibaldi in a in a corner, putting a curtain in front of him kind of thing. But uh, yeah, they, they decide, yeah, sure, fine. Two, two years, we'll work with that. It's going to take longer than two years, but at least it's kind of in the works as far as they're concerned. In 1866, a couple of big moves start happening in the world of German independence. The one that's relevant to our story is the Austro-Prussian War. Uh, Prussia decides that they need to defeat Austria. Uh, there's lots of reasons. Some of it is is practical, you know, control over the region. Some of it is kind of prideful, asserting, you know, German power over uh, a, a state that's refusing to join with them politically kind of thing. But the Italians look at this and go, Austria is busy. Maybe we can go get Venice now. <laughs> and they declare the Third Italian War of Independence. The second one, by the way, is the is the one that we previously talked about, you know, against uh, or where they had French support in uh, uh, 1859 and 1860. Right. Forgot to mention the name. Um, the uh, This War of Independence, the, the king basically go, goes ahead and calls up Garibaldi again and said, like, listen, we're doing this thing. Do you want to... Like, can, can we at least work together on it instead of you doing your own thing? And uh, Garibaldi gets back together, the uh, the Hunters of the Alps, back to fight some Austrians once again. He's very excited about all of this. <laughs> Here's the thing about the Third War of Independence. It is an absolute disaster for Italy from a military standpoint. They are defeated over and over and over again by the Austrian army. However... It's a political victory because what they do is essentially ally themselves with Prussia in the Austro-Prussian War. And the Prussians beat the tar out of the Austrians. It is like not even funny. And so when it comes to negotiating peace terms, Garibaldi's hunters do okay. Like they, they score some of the only victories in the entire war, to be honest with you. When it comes time to negotiate peace between Prussia and Austria, they manage to get the Italians at the table and negotiate away Venetia to Italian control. And the Austrians are basically like way too concerned with all the other concessions that have been extracted from them by the Prussians to really care that much about uh, Venetia anymore. And the Italians get it. And they're like, well, I, gu I guess that's a victory for us. <laughs> they don't really care so much about the military stuff. Like it's not like a pride thing necessarily it's literally a territory grab so that they can say that they control venice which is one of the great historical italian cities <laughs> sorry i i forgot how many times this happened that's why i'm laughing at my own notes here but 1867 garibaldi tries for rome again and is what? again driven back <laughs> like they can't keep this guy back it's it's ridiculous i forgot that there was another time but yeah, he's he's unsuccessful again. And and essentially that's because there's still French troops there and the, the army is still too big and too good. And because the Italian army won't actually invade yet, it's not the right time. They don't want to cause a disturbance with France. They're mostly just mad at Garibaldi for uh, endangering that relationship that they have. And then in 1870, uh, German independence or German unification rather, uh, once again helps Italy indirectly. 
by way of the Franco-Prussian War, in which, well, Prussia invades France, and it is a serious enough military endeavor that uh, France recalls all of their troops from the Papal States to come help defend, you know, actual France. And the Italians go, well, there's our opportunity, I guess. He basically offered a peaceful entrance of the Papal States into Italy under the guise of, like, protection kind of thing. Like, allow us to, like, annex you by treaty. And, you know, all of these foreign powers that are causing issues and blah, blah, blah. You know, that'll all go away once once you're under our protection. And the Pope went, no, like, I'm trying to remain independent. Like, this entire time, Pius is just trying to hold on to his temporal, like, political power. And every time I think about that, it's a little weird, right? Like, that's not what popes are supposed to do, it kind of feels like. But that's yeah. what he was doing. That's what the papacy was. That's what the papacy has been since, like, the 7th century and even before. So... With that offer turned down, uh, the Italian army invades and lays and lays siege to Rome. There's like a token defense offered by the papal army, but it's very, very clear that they're significantly outmatched by the Italian army. They lay siege to Rome. The, the token papal force is defeated. And basically, Victor Emmanuel says, OK, well, you know, we can annex it entirely you can become a roman protectorate like we can you can go somewhere else if you want like what what, what you know this is happening though and pius the ninth says nope not leaving i am staying right here in vatican city and i am uh you 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 are making me a prisoner in the vatican that's what's happening here and victor went no we're not like we just said you could leave like you can leave anytime you want man and there's this weird sort of cold war that develops between the Vatican and the rest of Italy that's not really going to be resolved until the, the late 1920s, actually. The entire period between, you know, 1871 and 1929, I believe, there's an antagonistic uh, relationship between Italy and the papacy, which is kind of wild in which that, that entire time, the, successing, the successive popes consider themselves imprisoned by Italy in the Vatican. Weird. Yeah, it's a weird dynamic. It's a very weird dynamic. Pius is going to spend the rest of his papacy basically writing polemics against uh, the state of Italy, how it's illegitimate and criminal and all of this stuff. But uh, as for the idea of Italian unification, Rome has declared the official capital of Italy and all administration moved to Rome in July of 1871. And there we go. Italy is unified. We did it. There's a great quote that comes at this point in time from a former Sardinian prime minister, Massimo de Zeglio. What he said was, Italy has been made, now it remains to make Italians. And I like that a lot because it points to a real problem that we've had up until this point, which is, what does it mean to be Italian? Who are Italians? You know, there's a dynamic that we didn't really dig into a whole lot, which is that historically there's been a really antagonistic dynamic between the south of Italy, um, the two Sicilies essentially, and the north of Italy, particularly Piedmont, Sardinia, there's this idea of Southern Italians in sort of Northern thinking of like kind of barbaric and lazy and uh, hedonistic and, and like just 
you know, a bunch of sloppy stereotypes, right? And that doesn't just go away overnight, necessarily. But it's being held by the people who are administrating the government of these regions now. Uh, The people who are governing these regions are, you know, they're historical enemies, they're military enemies, they're naval enemies, they are they are people who consider the people in the South less than. How do you how do you deal with that? We talked about language as a uniting factor, right? The idea of the Italian language, I, I, I even want to really challenge that as an idea of unification, because the Italian that we think of today, like standard Italian, like if you went, well, you've, you've been to Italy, right? Um, if you had yeah. decided that you wanted to take, you know, two months of Italian courses or, you know, do it on like, you know, one of those apps or something before you went, the Italian that you would learn is, is specifically Tuscan Italian, Toscano. That was sort of adopted as a common Italian around this time. But I mean, even Victor Emmanuel spoke Piedmontese, which is a a variant, like a dialect of of Italian, which is relatively different. Like it's not it's not a small change. It's not just like a little bit of an accent. And just as often he would have spoken French because so much of Piedmont Sardinia was was seated in historically French areas. So like you can't go by it language you know southern italy was speaking a very different version of a romance language than northern italy and again that would cause cultural issues it would cause exchange issues right um given the crazy success of the kingdom of sardinia in this unification i'm surprised they did just naturally implant whatever their language happened to be yeah i mean i think part of it is that both geographically and linguistically speaking, Tuscan Italian is kind of like dead center. Like it was an easier center point to move to. It's kind of like taking a very like neutral, you know, English accent in, in you know, North America and asking both, you know, people from the, you know, people from Boston and people from Texas to both move towards that. Um, right. You know, if, if that analogy works, I guess because moving towards one extreme or the other would have been harder. Uh, I don't know if those examples are the best, but it, I suppose it works here. There's also the fact that there's a significant amount of Italian nationalist uh, literature that emerged from that area. And so there's sort of this like romanticization of that dialect as being quintessentially Italian, if that makes sense. It's uh, everybody putting on the 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 london accent because uh so many london uh theater companies put on shakespeare and that's seen as a touchstone of of italian or of, of uh english literature um sure okay yeah. you know what i mean so yeah i mean you have you have language issues you have cultural exchange issues with this like sort of discrimination towards southern italians a lot of the a lot of the people looking for unification had talked about a, a government that's made up of like uh, you know, a confederation of sort of independent states in an Italian league to sort of maintain some of that independence. But what you end up with is is a really centralized, strong state under this this uh, this monarchy. Which, yeah, I mean, it's got some constitutional uh, undertones to it. But like, the people in the north are a lot more comfortable being ruled by a kingdom that's very similar to them than the people in the South. They're finding a very foreign government imposed on them and being expected to act like this is a, not just that it's a normal thing, but that it's somehow a return to an ideal of Italian-ness. 
And that's really difficult for those people. And that's just from like an identity standpoint, like a national standpoint. There's also problems of like integrating the military, for example. Well, the military of Italy is just going to look like the military of Piedmont, Sardinia. That strong uh, Sicilian Navy that we talked about is going to be forced to change over to a, a Sardinian model, even though the the Sicilian one had been stronger. The, you know taxes, laws, all of that stuff just kind of gets blanket placed on all of Italy from this one kingdom. And it's kind of like, well, this is what it means to be Italian now. And there's a lot of there's a lot of objection to this as being, uh, you know, Piedmontization of, of Italy. And they're not necessarily wrong. And, and yeah, and that's all the, the you know, that's administrative stuff. Then you get into problems like uh, the economy. The The North's economy was much, much stronger than the South's before unification. The way that Germany had dealt with this was a, a, an economic integration over several decades before unification occurred. Italy did it the other way around. They just opened a free trade market over all of Italy from day one and essentially collapsed the entire southern economy because it wasn't ready for how strong the northern one was and zero steps were taken to integrate or ease the southern economy into that market. And the economic ramifications of that are going to last a very long time in Italy. Uh, yeah. In fact, you can point to that specific issue along the, the economic collapse of the South, along with that alienation of government representation, you can draw a direct line from that to the proliferation of organized crime in Sicily and Southern Italy. Because there is a group of organized criminals who are stepping into a power vacuum left by the King of the Two Sicilies when defeated by the North that wasn't adequately filled by the Sardinian King. That's, you know, there are other, there are many other factors that are involved there, but you could point to that identity crisis uh, as, as being directly linked to the emergence of, like, the Sicilian mafia. Huh. Crazy. Mm -hmm. The population was almost entirely illiterate before unification, like more so than most places in in uh, in Europe. Over 60% of men and over 75% of women were illiterate. So there wasn't really an easy way to proliferate ideas about Italian nationalism. That was a really difficult thing. Schooling was one of the first things that was uh, prioritized by the new government, but that takes a long time to put in place. All of these things that we talked about earlier about being good ways of proliferating a national identity are absent when all the old things that would have helped with a national identity were taken away. So th this idea of, of Italy being a Catholic nation, that's hard to uphold when you've just defeated the Pope with, a, with, with an army, right? That's right. gone. The, 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 the religion thing, that's gone. The common language thing, that's not there. That doesn't exist yet. The proliferation of a lingua franca through uh, newspapers and through media and through education, that's real tough if you don't have any literacy. So what makes anyone in the South feel like they're connected to anyone in the North? Where is that cheering for them in the Olympics moment for the South of Italy? And, and vice versa. When, when your own countrymen have this idea of you, these, these stereotypical ideas of you as, as backwater, as being, you know, less than, that's real hard to forge anything out of. Yeah. 
that's more or less where I want to leave Italian unification. Italy's going to continue being a kingdom through the First World War. Um, there's going to be a scramble for uh, colonies in Africa, along with the other new great powers, kind of similar to what Germany would have done. Uh, they're going to have uh, colonies in Tunisia, uh, Ethiopia, uh, Eritrea, Somalia, uh, parts of Egypt, as sort of a way to kind of say, listen, we're here, we're a great power. Again, that points to an attempt to construct this identity as, you know, just as important and in certain ways just as established as large powers like Britain and France and even Austria. But even then there's like there's opposition to it from, you know, domestically from people who are saying like, listen, we don't have our own problems sorted out. Why are we going and building empires? And and. The response from the top is because, well, that's what great powers do. And we're a great power. Like there's this sort of like, well, we're Italy now. And since we're Italy now, we always have been. But that's not really the case when you look at how unified Italy is. Italians aren't treated equally, you know, not from the perspective of of individual fellow countrymen, not from uh, an economic perspective, not from the way people see themselves. Uh, I mean, if you ask somebody in Sicily, to this day, as we discussed, they might see themselves as more Sicilian than Italian. That's entirely possible. Imagine yeah. how that might be, or, or imagine how, how much stronger that might be in 1871, being told that you are newly unified as Italian. Probably not a sentiment that you'd agree with. The reason that I want to stop there and the reason that we don't keep going is because uh, the next chapter of all of this starts uh, at the very beginning of, of uh, fascism. The answer to this vacuum of national identity, of who are we as a unified people, um, the answer to that lies in the hypernationalism of fascism. So we'll we'll dig into that in in that topic uh, rather than than today. Today we'll sort of leave the the soft ending as as 1871 as the declared uh, unification of Italy and sort of the the little bit softer end of the 19th century to say that it didn't quite work as planned. That's a lot of ground that we covered today. It's maybe not quite as unified as as uh, you might have expected going into it. No, um, definitely not. It's yeah. certainly different than the usual kind of emergence of national consciousness stories that we're used to. What are your uh, What are your impressions on the whole thing? Is this, uh, uh, you know, what what kind of story were you expecting coming into this? I don't know. I think I was expecting it to be a little bit more of a force of nature, uh, uh, a natural occurrence, uh, and less of a uh, intentional thing by a relatively small group of people, um, at least geographically, right, who wanted this to occur. Mm-hmm. And it made me think about, yeah, nationhood in general, uh, uh, and uh, as a concept, something that you know, maybe we take for granted a little bit today in terms of of those identities and mm-hmm. like it isn't really a concept I'd thought too much about before. Yeah, I, I, I think I think nationhood is is one of those social constructs because it, it is a social construct where it doesn't really do you a whole lot of good on its own to point out that it's a construct. You know, that that analysis can help you maybe think more critically about the concept, but you know, the, the classic example would, would 
be money, right? Like you can, you can make the argument that money is a social construct. It's just a thing we've all decided to believe is real, but that doesn't make it not real. That doesn't mean that you can one day say to somebody like, you know, they, they ring you up at the, the cash register and they say, that'll be $20, please. And you can go, ah, it's just a social construct. Money isn't real. You still <laughs> got to give them the $20 or the thing. You don't get both. Um, nationhood is kind of the same way where it's like, I can, I can sit here and we can, you know, you and I can have a con- uh, conversation about how constructing the, the concept of nationhood is a, you know, is, is one of the means by which uh, people in power retain that power and convince convince uh, uh, lots of people to do many many different things. I mean, it's a it's a you can call it a made up thing, but people die for it, like literally die for it. They will you know willingly go to war for the concept of 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 nation, and that doesn't make it any less real or any less of a force in the world. But at the same time, it's it's worth examining. Well, how are these constructed, and how are they used? Um, because it's not always a, a you know sort of benign thing. Well, yeah, the the uh, the concept here is that um, creating a nation was uh, in a way a practical means to an end of rejecting a uh, a different ruling force uh definitely isn't something i would have thought of before that's mm-hmm. that's not as much i mean obviously it is you know there's, there's that those factors that manipulate the populations involved but they saw that as a as a, a means to a very specific end of of being able to be independent as a group mm-hmm. of of areas that are otherwise quite different. And that's a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, I, it, I also don't want to give the impression that concepts of nation are, are inherently a bad thing either. That's, that's something I want to be very clear about, especially when they are emergent, when, when this idea of nationhood sort of is grassroots in the way that you are sort of expecting it to be, when a bunch of people sort of decide on a level of kinship with each other as an emergent phenomenon, that's not, that's not in and of itself uh, harmful. Now, you know, ways that that can be manipulated, certainly. But then when you get into the 19th century uh, with Italy and with Germany and, and, and with other places, to be honest with you, um, you start seeing rulers who are able to use that concept in sort of uh, cynical and, and pragmatic ways. And really the difference between what happens in Germany and what happens in Italy is that uh, the people trying for it in Germany seem to have just done a better job of making it appear to be emergent, even though it was very much guided. Yeah. The Italian mistake, if anything, is just not doing enough of it before taking care of the state side of things. But both are kind of a little bit cynical grabs at consolidation of power through the construction of nationality. And again, that's not to say that those concepts are not real. It's just to say that the roots of them in many ways are centered around consolidation of power and that the nationhood comes second to those developing those ideas. It is a tool towards an end. And at that point, any goodness that comes out of it is just as accidental as, as, uh, as anything else that might be coming out of it. Right. Right. So anyways, um, 
and then uh, yeah, uh, really interested in this uh, this Garibaldi character. He's quite the uh, character, isn't he? Super interesting, uh, super interesting life story there. He was um, beloved in his time. Like Abraham Lincoln was like a big fan. They they wrote each other letters. Like <laughs> no, like for real, for real. I, I believe I could be wrong on this, but I believe Garibaldi is the one who coined the name the Great Emancipator for Lincoln. Um, oh, they were they, yeah, they were pals, you know. Um, and and I think that you know that that drive is really it, it's compelling to have someone that single-minded uh keep going and i'm gonna risk putting him on a pedestal so uh that's that's not what we want to do here so yeah i i guess um all, all that's really left to say is i, I think that what building it italian independence or italian unity through national identity shows is how powerful that national story can be how how powerful nationalism can be as a as a driving force and that points straight towards kind of the the most distilled version of that, which is uh, fascism, which we'll be getting to uh, not next time. We got a couple more topics to do, but soon you can kind of see why it emerges first in in Italy after the story that we just went through. Right? They're craving some sort of unification. They need it, or they're going to come apart to some extent. Right? Especially when you consider the trauma of the First World War. There's there's no way that they don't find something either italian identity comes apart or it needs to crystallize in a very meaningful way and the development of fascism is going to be that crystallization right so that's what we have to look forward to uh in the next couple of months uh super interesting colin thank you so much for coming on it's always a pleasure having you here absolutely thank you for having me The development of an Italian national identity was largely a result of a regional power using contemporary political philosophy to take advantage of weakening foreign influence to annex a large area and drive out foreign rulers. That has absolutely no bearing on the validity of an Italian identity. Honestly, most national identities have similarly functional roots. But the underdevelopment of that identity would leave Italy and Italians vulnerable to extreme nationalist ideals in the early 20th century. Next month on HI101, I'll be doing something a little bit different. I'm taking a bit of time off, which I very rarely do, and the next thing I'd like to talk about in this series is a topic I've already done, which had to happen at some point, right? So as a result, instead of a brand new topic, I'll be re-releasing one of my earliest topics with some added new commentary to make sure that it's in line with this project. This still gets all of you a new episode, but will take a lot less time for me to prepare so I can actually enjoy that time off. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I misquoted Paul Barras, executive of the French Directory, who once said of Napoleon, quote, advance this man or he will advance himself without you. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. 
if the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee you there's plenty of interesting information out there that we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI 101. Thank you.